0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And today, we're bringing you the second-to-last episode in our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. A lot of people remember the Manson murders, which took place the weekend of August 8th, 1969, as being the end of the 1960s. But the very next weekend, the decade and its associated counterculture had perhaps their brightest shining moment when thousands of hippies descended on Woodstock, New York for a free concert that sent the message to much of straight America that maybe something positive could come out of this youth movement after all. Meanwhile, on Spawn Ranch, the Manson family spent the weekend of August 15th, 1969, facing down existential threats. On Friday night, a delegation from the biker gang, the Straight Satans, showed up on Spawn Ranch determined to liberate Danny DiCarlo, the gang's treasurer. Danny had been living on the ranch for a while, and he had learned too much about what Charlie and his family had been up to— And now, according to DiCarlo, Charlie wouldn't let him leave. Charlie was able to distract the angry bikers for a while with drugs and his girls, and then he told them he had snipers hiding in the dark, ready to shoot if they were to make a move on Charlie. The straight satans were apparently part-time tough guys at best, and this was scary enough that they just gave up and left. But the next day, Saturday, August 16th, Spawn Ranch was raided by L.A. County cops, who believed an illegal car theft ring was being operated on this old Western movie set. It took hours and hours for them to search the ranch, to find all of the cars and modified dune buggies hidden in nooks and crannies, and to find all of the people. Charlie picked the best hiding place, and he was the last member of the family handcuffed and taken away. When the cops told Charlie he was being arrested for Grand Theft Auto, Charlie breathed a sigh of relief. The family members were in jail for two nights, and then on Monday, they were released. The warrant to search the ranch had been originally issued on August 13th, but the raid hadn't occurred until August 16th, so the warrant wasn't valid. Charlie believed that Shorty Shea, the spawn ranch hand and wannabe stuntman who had been trying to get the Manton family off of the property pretty much ever since they arrived, had called the cops and instigated the raid. Even though all of the family members had been let go and the county cops had essentially revealed through omission that they had no idea that Manton and his followers were involved with any murders, the raid was still a bummer because most of the family's cars and dune buggies had been confiscated. Now Manson would have to delay their escape to Death Valley even further because it would take time to get more vehicles that could traverse the desert. By late August, two weeks after the Tate and LaBianca murders, Shorty Shea surely suspected the Manson family's involvement. Certain family members, including Clem, Tex, and Susan, seemed to be bragging about the murders to anyone who would listen. Shay probably tried to keep his distance from the Mansonites as much as he could on the ranch, but it still seems pretty likely that Shorty had heard something from somebody. So why did Shorty get in a car on August 25th or 26th with Charlie, Clem, and Bruce Davis? Maybe they forced him. Maybe they tricked him. All we know is that around 10 p.m., Manson girl Barbara Hoyt, who had fallen asleep in a structure on the outskirts of the ranch, was awoken by screams. And Shorty Shea was never heard from again. Charlie lied to the other ranch hands the next day, telling them that Shorty went to San Francisco because Charlie had told him about a job there. A week later, the Manson family finally took their leave of Spawn Ranch and moved to the desert. The center of their commune would be Barker Ranch, a property belonging to one of the Manson girls' grandmothers, located just south of the town of Ballarat, where Wyatt and Billy begin their road trip in Easy Rider. The bikers, played by Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, think they're journeying into freedom, When in fact, unbeknownst to them, the beginning of their road trip is the beginning of the end of their lives. Similarly, the Manton family migrated to Barker Ranch on promises of utopia, unaware that their community was signing its death sentence with the move. The months they spent there would be their last stand before the LAPD would finally put two and two together and put Charlie behind bars. And it was also, in terms of the Manson family's notoriety, just the beginning. By the following year, Manson and his followers were nightly news superstars, and a major European auteur would release a film shot in 1968, which, in using Death Valley as the backdrop for psychedelia, free love, a radical stance against the establishment, and visions of the apocalypse, seemed to unconsciously channel the Manson Family Nightmare. Join us, won't you? As we move with the Manson Family and Michelangelo Antonioni to Death Valley. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. A few days after the killings, Linda Kasabian had had enough of the Manson family. When Charlie asked her to take one of the family's cars and go visit Bobby Beausoleil in jail to make sure he wasn't going to snitch, Linda instead drove to New Mexico, where her estranged husband was living. She had to leave her baby daughter, Tanya, behind at Spawn Ranch in order to get away. When the ranch was raided on August 16th, the children living there were taken by social services. So when Linda found this out, she went through the city channels to get her daughter back. She didn't speak to anyone about the crimes that she knew had been committed by the Manson family. She was just happy to have her kid back and to be free of Charlie's clutches. And the city officials didn't know enough to know to ask Linda about her involvement with the Manson family. At this point, all they had to go on were some fragments of the handle of the gun used at Cielo Drive, which Tex had smashed over Frykowski's head, and a few theories, most of them involving drugs. Charlie was worried about the cops, but he wasn't that worried. He was more worried about the bikers and the Black Panthers, who he still assumed were after him because of his shooting of, Lots of Papa, and he was worried that in L.A., He couldn't keep his family together. So Manson decided to keep them isolated and keep them busy. Once they had stolen enough cars to transport the nearly 30 followers still following Manson, they started the journey into Death Valley. Manson had initially planned to use Barker Ranch as his base of operations. That was where some of the family had stayed for a while in late 1968. But by now, there were too many of them to fit on Barker Ranch, so some of the family spilled over onto the nearby Myers Ranch. In the desert, Manson kept his cult busy. Days were spent digging holes in which to hide food and guns, building bunkers into hillsides, and searching for the bottomless pit— The literal hole in the ground, which Charlie had promised his followers they would be able to use to access an underground city where they could hide out during the coming Black Man's Apocalypse. The result of all of this working and searching was that by nightfall every night, Charlie's followers were too tired to argue or ask questions— At which point he'd further subdue them by giving them acid and preach to them in their drugged state about the spoils they were soon to enjoy as saviors of the human race. He also talked candidly about how he had murdered Shorty Shea because the ranch hand had betrayed him. Shorty Shea got cut up into little pieces, Charlie would say. That was what would happen to any of the current family members who dared to expose Charlie's secrets. Juan Flynn, one of the ranch hands from Spawn, had followed the family to the desert, hoping he could do something to get justice for his friend Shorty. But once there, Flynn was unsure how to challenge Charlie, and he was afraid to leave. Danny DiCarlo had also followed the family out to Barker Ranch, but at some point, he was able to escape. He hid out with his biker friends in Venice, terrified that Charlie was going to send his minions out to the beach to kill him. Some of the family members who hadn't participated in the murders hadn't really understood the full extent of them until they got out to the desert, where Susan and Charlie got in the habit of telling highly explicit, even embellished stories about their crimes. A few of the younger girls, like Barbara Hoyt and Kitty Lutzinger, the girlfriend of Bobby Beausoleil who was pregnant with his baby, heard these stories, and wanted to leave the family. They were so far out in the middle of nowhere that they felt they had nowhere they could go. Kitty didn't know that back in Los Angeles, county investigators were looking for her because they wanted to question her before Bobby's trial. Eventually, Barbara and another young Manson girl, Sherry Cooper, snuck out of the ranch, walked 16 hours across the desert, before finally coming to a general store in the town of Ballarat, where they were able to hitch a ride back to L.A. Barbara moved in with her mother in Canoga Park, not far from Spawn Ranch. Barbara was so afraid that Charlie would come after her, that instead of sleeping at night, she'd stay up and stand guard with a kitchen knife. She told her mom everything she had heard about the murders, but her mom didn't believe her. Still, she had it better than Sherry. On November 16th, 1969, a female corpse was discovered off an embankment on Mulholland Drive. Though the body was never officially identified, it matched the description of Sherry. The woman had been stabbed 157 times. Meanwhile, Charlie had already lost two valuable male followers, Brooks Poston and Paul Watkins, to a competing commune led by a guy named Paul Crockett, a Scientologist who kept his followers busy combing the desert looking for gold. First, Charlie tried to get Crockett to join his family by scaring him with details about the coming race war. But even a gold-hunting Scientologist, found helter skelter a little tough to swallow. Then Charlie asked Juan Flynn to prove his loyalty by killing Crockett. Instead, Flynn proved his loyalty by running away from Manson and going to live with Crockett. The Manson family had functioned incredibly well as a commune on Spahn Ranch, but in Death Valley, Almost immediately, it became impossible to fulfill basic needs. The food ran out fast. The acid ran out even faster. In desperation, Charlie drove back to L.A. and begged his old music industry connection, Greg Jacobson, for money. Greg took one look at Crazy Charlie and told him he should go back to the desert. You don't belong in the city anymore, man, Jacobson said. When Charlie returned to Death Valley, he tightened his reins. He promised anyone who left the family would be hunted down and killed. He demanded that they work harder to find the supposed bottomless pit. One day, while out looking for it, some of the kids came across an earth mover near the Death Valley National Monument. They stripped the machine for parts and set the remaining wreck on fire. This attracted the attention of park rangers, who took note of nearby tire tracks from a four-wheel drive vehicle, asked around, and heard that people had seen a bunch of hippies in the area with a four-wheel drive Toyota. Eventually, the rangers were able to put it together that the car belonged to the hippies living at Barker Ranch, so they paid a visit to the ranch one day. Everyone was out looking for the bottomless pit, and the car was out on one of these expeditions. But on the way back from this fruitless visit, the Rangers saw Paul Crockett, Charlie's Scientologist nemesis, driving around in the area. They asked Crockett if he knew anything about these hippies who lived at Barker Ranch, who had a four-wheel drive Toyota. And boy, did Crockett know about those hippies. Crockett told the Rangers everything about how these hippies were acid gobblers who hoarded guns and had orgies, who were combing through the desert looking for a non-existent hole that would take them to an imaginary city where they thought that they could hide while black people set the world on fire. They believed all of this, Crockett said, because the guy who led them had said so, and he had convinced them that he was something like Jesus. Crockett told the park rangers that Charlie had bragged about killing people. Crockett told the park rangers that Charlie was crazy and it was hard to believe a lot of what he said, but when he said he had killed people, you believed him. Soon thereafter, Crockett freaked out. He didn't think the rangers had been duly impressed by the information he had given them, and he knew that if Charlie had figured out that he had told law enforcement about the family, Charlie would come to kill Crockett. So Crockett and his gang, including Juan Flynn, snuck away and fled to the aptly named town of Independence, about a hundred miles away. But the rangers had heard enough to convince them to investigate the area around Barker Ranch. Soon they came upon seven, barely clothed young ladies hanging out in the brush behind the property. We're a Girl Scout troop from the Bay Area, Squeaky Frome told them. Would you and the ranger like to be our scout masters? The rangers declined the proposition, and they couldn't come up with a reason to arrest these naked scouts, so the rangers moved on. Soon they found the Toyota. They took notice of the license plate number, and thinking they were setting a trap, the rangers took a couple of parts out of the engine to disable the car. What they didn't know is that Tex Watson was watching from the bushes. When the rangers left, he fixed the car using parts from another car and drove it into a new hiding place. When Charlie heard what happened, he gave Tex a shotgun and told him to wait in the attic at the house on Myers Ranch. He told Tex that if he spotted the rangers coming, he should start shooting. By now, it was the end of September, and the family had been in Death Valley for a month. Almost two months had passed since the Tate-LaBianca murders, which the LAPD still didn't think were related to one another, and they had no idea they were related to Charles Manson. But Tex didn't know that. As he sat up in the attic waiting for what he thought were law officers coming to take him to prison, Tex started thinking about what they were even doing out in the desert. Why hadn't they found the bottomless pit? All they were doing was looking for it. And shouldn't Charlie have a better idea of where it was? Tex decided then and there that he wasn't going to listen to Charlie anymore. He climbed down from the attic, got into a station wagon the family kept on the property, drove to San Bernardino, and called his parents in Texas. His family bought him a flight to Dallas, but soon enough, Tex ran away again, first to Mexico and then back to California. He was worried that maybe Charlie wasn't full of shit— Maybe helter-skelter was going to happen after all. But by the time he actually made it back to Barker Ranch, months later, the family was gone. Charlie was livid when he found out about Texas's disappearance. He took his frustrations out on family member Stephanie Schram. Schramm could only take so many beatings before she started looking for a way out. Pregnant Kitty Lusinger was ready to go, too. One night in October, when Charlie was in L.A. scavenging for food, Stephanie and Kitty snuck out. It was nighttime, and in the desert darkness, they promptly got lost. They were terrified. They knew that as soon as the sun was up, the family would come looking for them. What they didn't know was that the park rangers had run the license plate of the Toyota and determined it had been stolen— And that, with the information from Paul Crockett, had been enough to convince them to organize a raid, which was scheduled for the next morning. Though a few managed to hide, 11 family members were arrested, including Gypsy, Clem Grogan, Susan Atkins, Pat Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Hooden, and Squeaky Frome. They were all booked on theft and arson charges. After the suspects had been taken away in paddy wagons, when the last law officers were driving away... Kitty and Stephanie jumped out of the bushes. They told the cops they had tried to run away from the ranch, that they were afraid for their lives, and the cops took them into protective custody. Still down in L.A., Charlie heard about the raid, and instead of going on the lam, leaving the family members still straggling out in the desert to fend for themselves, Manson defiantly returned to Barker Ranch. He thought it meant something that he hadn't been home when the cops had come. He thought it was a sign that he was meant to evade arrest. The people in jail were either fiercely loyal to him, too crazy to be taken seriously, or, in the cases of Clem and Susan, a little of both. He didn't think they would talk, and he didn't think the rangers would come back to Barker Ranch. On both counts, Charlie was wrong. The law officers had heard enough about Charlie that they figured it was a problem, that he hadn't been arrested on their first visit, so they decided to go back. On October 12th, at dusk, Barker Ranch was raided again. A ranger, Purcell, busted through the door to the main house and found seven people sitting around a kitchen table, dressed in rags. It was dinner time, but they weren't eating. They had nothing to eat. Diane Lake was there, and Bruce Davis, but no Charlie. The cops got to work handcuffing the seven, and by the time they were done, it was dark. There were no electric lights in the house, just a couple of flickering candles. Ranger Purcell wasn't sure, but he thought he saw in the candlelight a few strands of hair stuck in the door of a cabinet in the bathroom. He approached, candle in hand. The cabinet door started to open, and a small man started to climb out. If you make one false move, I'll blow your head off, the cop promised. Charlie Manson said, Hi. For decades, people would ask Purcell, why didn't you shoot him? And Purcell would say, how can you shoot a guy whose first word to you is, hi? Hi. There were two trucks full of cops and prisoners that drove from Barker Ranch to the Inyo County Jail that night. Charlie was in the same truck as Purcell, the ranger who had found him in the cabinet. Charlie started talking to Purcell like they were old buddies, or at least brothers in a fraternity of white men. Charlie was like, You know, the blackies are about to rise up against the white men. A war's gonna come, and the blacks are gonna win. And they're gonna come after you, my friend, because you're a cop and you're white. The smart thing to do, brother, would be for y'all to let us go and run for your own damn lives. Purcell did not let Manson and his family go. Instead, he booked Charlie and the rest of the kids on charges of grand theft auto. Charlie signed his name as... Manson, Charles M., a.k.a. Jesus Christ, God. 27 family members were now in custody. 28, if you counted Bobby Beausoleil... But none of the law enforcement agencies involved yet understood that the Charlie Manson arrested with his followers in the desert was the same Charlie Manson with whom the suspected killer of Gary Hinman had claimed to be associated. These dots were finally connected thanks to Kitty Lusinger, who had popped out of the bushes and begged to be protected from Manson, and was now happy to cooperate with law enforcement, even if it meant that her baby daddy Bobby would be convicted for murder. Brought in for questioning, Kitty told the police everything she had heard about the Hinman murder, including this story that Susan had told her about stabbing a guy in the legs. Hinman had been stabbed in the chest, not the legs, but this was enough for the county police, who were investigating Bobby's case, to bring Susan, who was in custody with the rest of the raided family out in Independence, out to LA for questioning in the Hinman case. Susan's compulsion to brag trumped her loyalty to Charlie. Although in her version of the story, it was Bobby who nearly sliced Hinman's ear off, and Charlie wasn't at all involved. The police out in Death Valley had trouble getting the grand theft auto charges to stick, and most of the family members rounded up in the raid were eventually released. But they managed to keep Charlie in jail on an arson charge, and slowly the different investigators on the different murders started making connections. Kitty had told the cops that Susan had told her that she had stabbed a guy in the legs. The detectives on the Hinman case, like everyone, had heard about the Tate crime scene, and they knew one of the men killed there had been stabbed repeatedly in the legs. They contacted the detectives on the Tate case, who took down Kitty's phone number, and didn't call her. But then Susan, who was being held in connection to the Hinman murder, was transferred to the Sybil Brand Institute, a ladies' jail in downtown LA. Susan's jail roommates were two women named Virginia Graham and Ronnie Howard, both prostitutes who had been coincidentally married to the same man. The three women got to chatting with each other, swapping stories. Susan told Virginia that the cops were stupid. They believed that she had just held Hinman still while Bobby stabbed him, when in fact, Susan claimed, she had done the stabbing. She also told Virginia about Charlie and Helter Skelter and the bottomless pit, so Virginia thought Susan was just making shit up. But Susan just kept talking. She told Virginia there was another murder case, one on Bendick Canyon, and the cops were totally off base on that one. Virginia was like, Wait a minute, do you mean the Sharon Tate murder? And Susan was like, You know who did it? You're looking at her. Susan told Virginia that Manson had planned the murders because he wanted to shock the world, and that they chose that house because Manson had been there when Terry Melcher lived there. Susan described to Virginia the deaths of Folger and Sebring and Frykowski. And then there was Tate. Susan bragged that she had finished off Tate herself. Sharon Tate had begged for her life, but... As Susan told Virginia, I got sick of listening to her, so I stabbed her. Susan told Virginia she remembered tasting Tate's blood. It was warm and sticky and nice. She talked to Ronnie, too. She told Ronnie about how Charlie had a list of celebrities that he wanted to kill, that Sharon Tate was the first, but that Elizabeth Taylor and Frank Sinatra were next. She told Ronnie that she got a sexual thrill from stabbing Tate. Especially when you see the blood spurting out, Susan said. It's better than a climax. Virginia and Ronnie didn't know what to do. You weren't supposed to snitch on a cellmate. And for all they knew, this bitch was just crazy. In November, Susan went to a preliminary hearing at which she learned that it was Kitty who had told the police about her involvement in the Hinman murder and not Bobby. Susan came back to her cell and told Ronnie and Virginia that now Kitty's life wasn't worth anything. Shortly after that, Virginia was transferred to another jail and Ronnie decided that if she didn't tell on Susan, she would feel responsible if more people were to die. Ronnie tried to tell a prison deputy but the deputy didn't do anything. At her new jail, Virginia was also feeling a compulsion to speak up, and she decided to set a meeting with a jail psychologist whom she trusted to ask her what to do about Susan. Virginia was told that she'd have to wait a couple of weeks to see the psychologist. About a week passed. Ronnie was taken to a court hearing in Santa Monica, and while there, she was allowed to use a payphone. She used her phone call to call the Beverly Hills PD and told the receptionist that she knew who committed the and LaBianca murders. They told her to call the Hollywood police, and Ronnie managed to get another coin and place the call. The cop she talked to there was actually interested in hearing what Ronnie had to say. Meanwhile, at the very same time, thanks to a tip from Kitty Lusinger, Detectives at Parker Center in downtown L.A. were conducting an extensive interview with Danny DeCarlo, the straight Satan's treasurer who was afraid of Charlie and who agreed to tell the cops everything he knew in exchange for protection and immunity on a few charges of his own. And Danny knew a lot. He was talking about how he heard that Shorty Shea had had his arms and legs sliced off for being a snitch when a couple of new detectives entered the interrogation room. These detectives had just finished talking to Ronnie Howard. The following day, a young district attorney named Vincent Bugliosi was informed that he would be prosecuting the Tate and LaBianca murder cases in tandem. It took Buliosi a few weeks to put together a motive, but on December 1st, the LAPD held a press conference. They had cracked the Tate and LaBianca murders. Hippie Klan is suspect in murder of Sharon Tate, reported the UPI. The L.A. Times ran with the headline, Grudge Against Doris Day's Son Linked to Tate Slayings. Over the next year, Charles Manson would be written about in nearly every American newspaper, nearly every day. He finally had the spotlight he craved. And as we'll see in our next episode, he made the most of it in a way that only Charlie Manson could. Just two months after the LAPD's press conference, while Manson and his family's activities were very much still a part of the national conversation, a movie was released that eerily reflected Manson's whole scene. Zabriskie Point. A remote and barren blister of land in the American desert. As isolated as the face of the moon. Zabriskie Point, where a boy and a girl meet and touch and blow their minds. Zabriskie Point was shot in 1968 and early 1969. Before the murders, before Barker Ranch, before anyone involved with the movie likely knew anything about the Manson family. And yet, the film has been the subject of Manson conspiracy theories. And not least because it depicts so many of the things that Manson and his family were involved with and concerned about. The film begins in a classroom where white students and members of the Black Panthers are debating social revolution. Though he was afraid of the Panthers. Manson had basically told his white hippie followers that they were going to collaborate with black revolutionaries to tear down the establishment and start over. The main protagonist of the film, Mark, played by Mark Fouchette, buys a gun to kill a cop, but although someone else ends up killing that cop, Mark becomes a suspect, so he then goes on the run to Death Valley. He ends up meeting a girl, played by Daria Halperin, who works for a development company trying to build a utopian city of skyscrapers out in the desert. The mirror image of Charlie Manson's made-up underground city, which he promised his followers they could enter through the bottomless pit. Daria and Mark end up having sex in the desert, and Antonioni turns the sequence into a kind of surrealistic orgy in which Daria and Mark see, or imagine they see, hundreds of couples also doing it in the desert. Or maybe they see themselves multiplied a thousand times. Either way, it's a utopian vision of the free love that Manson's family felt they were practicing. Zabriskie Point famously ends, with Daria either witnessing, imagining, or instigating, possibly telepathically, a series of gorgeous explosions, beginning with the combustion of her boss's modernist lair, and, as Pink Floyd swells on the soundtrack, the slow-motion explosions of all of the stuff inside. End tables, refrigerators, disembodied racks of clothes. A raw chicken and a box of Special case cereal flowed out of the clouds of debris. It's the post-war consumerist American dream. Literally, maybe too literally, although spectacularly, going up in flames. Zabriskie Point would get terrible reviews, lose a lot of money, and permanently sour Antonioni on the American film industry, and vice versa. The trouble was baked into the movie from the beginning, almost intentionally. Stars Mark Frechette and Daria Halperin were both first-time actors, and after Zabriskie Point, while neither would go on to become real movie stars, together and apart they'd become a certain type of superstar symbol of the counterculture— famously appearing together on The Dick Cavett Show. They were thrown together entirely by chance. Antonioni had seen Halperin in a documentary about Haight-Ashbury hippies called Revolution, in which she appeared naked, reciting poetry. By the time Antonioni called about Zabriskie Point, Halprin was studying anthropology at Berkeley, but she eagerly dropped out of school to do his movie. Antonioni's assistant had discovered Frochette at a bus stop, where she spotted him yelling motherfucker at someone in the apartment above, and the assistant called Antonioni and told him she had found the guy because, quote, he's 20 and he hates. Frechette would certainly come to hate Antonioni, who he quickly decided was a phony who knew nothing about the revolution that he aimed to depict. At one point, Frechette shut down production by walking off the set for six days, by which point the movie was already five months over schedule. Frechette's opinion of Antonioni is sort of ironic, because there are reports that the U.S. government actually thought Antonioni was dangerous. The U.S. Attorney's Office apparently investigated the film while it was in production as a potentially subversive act, and they ultimately tried to bring charges on Antonioni himself for violating the Mann Act, which bars the transport of women across state lines for immoral purposes. But once it was proven that the film's orgy scene was shot on the California side of the desert, the feds had nothing. Halperin and Frechette fell in love on the set of the film. And when filming was over, Frechette brought Halperin with him to Boston, where he was part of a cult-slash-commune called the Fort Hill Community, led by a guy named Mel Lyman. A folk musician who spent the early 60s hanging out in New York with experimental filmmakers Jonas Mikas and Bruce Conner... In 1966, with Mikas' assistance, Lyman published a book called Autobiography of a World Savior, which was taken seriously as a spiritual manifesto, despite its similarities to Superman comics, and Lyman's later claim that he wrote it as an in-joke for his Scientologist friends. That same year, Lyman started his commune in Boston, and soon thereafter the commune started an underground newspaper called Avatar. Conceived as a quote-unquote hip Christian science monitor, Avatar sounds like a pretty incredible artifact. It often included serious reporting on things like local Boston politics and the Black Power movement, as well as a quote-unquote regular column on fucking. One issue contained nothing but photographs of a hot lady associate of Lyman's on an acid trip. When news agents carrying Avatar started getting arrested on obscenity charges, Lyman published a defiantly obscene editorial. There are a bunch of dirty cocksuckers down in Cambridge who are giving us a hard time about our goddamn paper. Lyman wrote. Well, fuck them. If they don't like it, they can shove it up their fucking asses. Imagine the nerve of those guys. I bet they eat pussy. Later, Lyman intentionally forced the issue again, publishing a centerfold illustration featuring renderings of four words. Fuck. Shit. Piss. Cunt. Lyman and friends won every First Amendment battle they fought, and in the process, became celebrities of a sort. In 1971, Rolling Stone devoted the cover of two consecutive issues to a sprawling investigation of Lyman, written by journalist David Felton. By that point, Halperin had left Frechette and Lyman. Felton wrote cryptically that her parents, quote, fear for her life, and refused to discuss the matter. A year later, Halprin was married to Dennis Hopper. A year after that, Mark Frechette was in prison, serving time for a bank robbery that he had tried to commit with a couple of fellow cult members, apparently as a political statement. Frechette had given Lyman every cent he had ever earned as an actor— But he claimed he didn't rob the bank for the money. As Frechette put it, we just reached the point where all that the three of us really wanted to do was hold up a bank. It would be like a direct attack on everything that is choking this country to death. Two years after that, Frechette himself, and I'm not kidding, choked to death. The official story is that he was bench pressing 150 pounds in the gym at the Massachusetts Correctional Institute when his hand slipped and he dropped the bar on his neck, asphyxiating himself instantly. The cult life of Mark Frechette and his bizarre death make the similarities between the Manson scene and Zabriskie Point a little too close for comfort. Like Charles Manson, Mel Lyman used a combination of science fiction, drugs, music, charisma, and pure intimidation to wield influence over people. Like Charles Manson, Mel Lyman asked people to believe that he was either Jesus Christ himself, or at least some kind of God. Like Manson, Lyman forced his followers to give up their wealth and possessions in order to join the cause. But because some of Lyman's followers were very wealthy— including his wife, the daughter of painter Thomas Hart Benton, Lyman got to live in mansions. Unlike Manson, Lyman created a community that was able to transcend the uniquely apocalyptic American moment of the late 1960s. Though Lyman himself died in 1970, under mysterious circumstances, at the age of 40, the community survived into the 1980s. In 1985, the LA Times reported that there were still 60 Fort Hill members, and that they ran a farm and made money renovating houses for people like Dustin Hoffman and Steven Spielberg. Manson admired Lyman, or at least he said he did when he needed him. Manson wrote Lyman a letter from jail, pledging his allegiance to Lyman and asking him to break him out of prison. Lyman said Manson's letter made him sad, quote, Because he's so close and so far away. He came so close to the truth. He came so close to really being a compassionate man. I just wanted to get hold of him and kick him that one step further. Next week, in our final episode in this series... We'll talk more about Manson's life in jail and on trial, and we'll learn about the writers, filmmakers, and movie stars who got caught in Manson's orbit once he was officially internationally famous. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth, That's me. We had two special guests. Nate DeMeo made his return as Charles Manson. You should listen to Nate's podcast. It's really good. It's called The Memory Palace, and you can find it at thememorypalace.us. And our second special guest was Max Linsky, who played Mel Lyman. Max works for longform.org, which works to draw your attention to some of the best longform journalism out there. And he also has a podcast on which he talks to some of the best and most interesting journalists working today. You can find it at longform.org. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, You youmustrememberthispodcast.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Remember This Pod. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back next week with the final episode in Charles Manson's Hollywood. Join us then, won't you? Good night.